Today on the WSJ Media Mix podcast, we speak with Mike Dyer, the president of the Daily Beast, about why the company isn't making a huge bet on social media platforms and why content marketing is a growing part of his business. Welcome to the WSJ Media Mix podcast, bringing you interviews and analysis with people that matter in the fast-changing media business. Hello and welcome to the WSJ Media Mix podcast. I'm Stephen Perlberg. I'm here with Jack Marshall. Jack, how are you today? I'm great, Steve. Our listeners don't know this, but we're wearing the exact same shirt. I know. It's really embarrassing. Um, we sit next to each other as well. This is good that this is a podcast because (laughs) it'd be really embarrassing if we had to do this in front of camera. Um, But we are really excited because we are joined by Mike Dyer. He's the president and publisher of The Daily Beast, a news site focusing on politics, entertainment, uh, owned by IAC. So, Mike, thank you so much for, for coming in today. My pleasure. Uh, hopefully the shirts don't distract you too much and you're, you're able to... It's see- a little distracting, but I'm, <laughs> I'm going to try to push through. All right. So we'd be, we, we should probably start considering that uh, Daily Beast covers uh, politics, among, among other verticals. We are in the middle of an election. I don't know if you if you knew that. Yeah, I saw your pinball machine out front. We had yes. uh, the the Clinton versus Trump pinball machine. So that's what tipped me off. It's a good metaphor for for this election. We feel, but <laughs> um, we were we were talking about before you got here that it's such a feeding frenzy, probably for publishers covering the election. Um, Daily Beast, Wall Street Journal. We're, we're, I was sort of curious, like as we now head toward the finish line, um, is there any concern or or post-game strategy for when the Donald Trump content balloon, like, pops and, and perhaps he won't, you know, be as uh, ever-present in, in web publishing these days? Like, do you, in the same way that TV networks are bracing for ratings to go down next year, like, do you guys think about that? There are kind of two parts to it for us that, that we're highly conscious of. Uh, the premise of your question, I think, is is accurate, is that even relative to previous presidential election cycles, there's an outsized or disproportionate interest in this one for good reasons and bad. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, but there's no doubt that for most digital publishers, most publishers generally, um, you've seen an increase in viewership, you've seen an increase in readership, you've seen an in- increase in content distribution. Um, and to a certain extent, that's been true for us. I mean, the beast is up 20% in traffic organically uh, year over year. But the thing that's good for us, and the reason I'm not over con- overly concerned about your question, is that we've seen broad-based growth. World news far and away um, has been one of our strongest, if not the single strongest vertical uh, for us, or topic area for us, uh, for the past few years. Um, the second answer, the second part of this, is that what you see every time there is a presidential election cycle is there is some decline in the interest uh, in the horse race and that coverage. But there is really for two to three months after the election. So November, December, January, and typically a little bit of February, you see an uh, increase in interest uh, around the topics that drove the election or the topics that uh, captured people's attention. And some of those are going to d- disappear uh, when the election ends, obviously. But unquestionably, one that won't is the role of cybersecurity and cyber warfare uh, as a new area for the public's constant attention. I think um, the questions of hacking and the releasing of private emails during the election, uh, the charges of collusion with Russia or WikiLeaks and the Trump campaign, etc., um, those things, I think, have 
permanently turned uh, the public's attention in some way to that. And that's been a core coverage area. And that's been a core coverage area for us and will continue to be. So we feel good about where we're going in 2017 uh, to mitigate the declines that you typically see. We can talk about this more broadly, but sort of sticking with the election sort of theme, obviously it's been sort of a big topic on social media that's driven a lot of traffic through Facebook and some of those other channels. Um, Have you seen sort of that boost coming from social media or, you know, are people coming to you to sort of catch up with that? So we take a contrarian, but we also think evidence-based view of social media, which okay. is uh, that we we do not um, worship at the altar of the distributed media or distributed audience model. Um, we're not opposed to the benefits that a Facebook or a Snapchat or a Twitter can bring to us. Um, but we focus day in and day out on building uh, a relationship with an audience that wants to come to us directly. So as it relates to the question about Trump coverage, uh, election coverage, that is disproportionately something that our loyal audience wants from us. You know, about almost 50% at this point of our traffic comes to us directly, which is insanely high for a yeah, that is really high. digital publishing company. So when you say direct, do you mean sort of through email as well or just yep. direct to the site? Or? Direct to the site. Uh, but how they got there, you know, could, could be through email or other shared links and things like that, but it dark but social, a little bit of dark social. Yeah, I mean that's that's that. one of those. Well, yeah, it's one of those words that you say, and then you have to say, like, okay, so let me peel that apart. What, right. what does it that mean? Right? I just chatted you a link. Like, <laughs> right, hey, check right, this right, out. Right. It's yeah. not as sexy yeah. when you say that. Right. Like. Exactly. Um, so we we see the the majority of the interests come from people who are either semi loyal or loyal to us. But there's no question that when certain events happen around the campaign that would take off in social one way or the other, we do benefit from that. But that's not our focus. Why do you think uh, you mentioned you kind of take the contrarian view? So many publishers are taking the, I guess, more conventional view now. The gospel. The gospel. And worshiping at the altar of the Facebook gods and the Google gods and embracing this sort of distributed approach. Some of your competitors are raising hundreds of millions of dollars to to pump resources into things like Facebook and Facebook video. Um, Do you think that that is going to lead to the great media shakeout that people are predicting? I mean, do you, do you think that they're, they're taking, some of your competitors are taking the wrong, the wrong strategy there? Well, I can't weigh in on whether it's the right or wrong strategy for them, but what I can say is it's probably the wrong strategy for us. Uh, and and we're, we're pretty clear-eyed about this, right? We're not religious in one way or the other. If we believed it was the right thing to do for our brand and our users and our journalism, we would do that. But what's very clear to us is that there's a difference between doing the hard spade work of building a brand that truly means something to users, not just that we say that, but that we can measure that it does, number one. Two, that we have a a meaningful number of them coming to us directly. I mean, when I say it's 50% of our traffic, almost 50% of our traffic, I think right now it's like 45, 46, and it fluctuates. And I tell you that we've grown 20% every year for the past four years. So now we're talking about an audience of 27 million people, almost half of whom come to us directly, right? There's clearly something we're doing that's working there. And the reason that we want to go further, harder, and faster in that direction versus what I would call uh, easy uh, audience growth for the sake of scale or for the sake of a large monthly unique number is all that's renting. That's not buying, right? If those platforms, as they do, as is their purview, and I don't begrudge them, 
for making decisions that are better for their platforms than they are for publishers. That's the way it works. And if you're going to play in somebody else's yard, you have to play by their rules. Right. And as soon as they make any sort of tweak, yep. you know, you, you have to jump when they and say how high. that is the history of publishers on other companies' platforms. People will say, you will hear people in my role at other companies say, well, the CPMs will catch up, the strategy will catch up, etc. What I always say, which is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I, I mostly believe, is prove to me where that's happened before. That is not the preponderance of evidence of publishers being on social platforms. Those companies, Facebook, Snapchat, whomever, the list is very long, um, need to do what's right for those companies. To the extent that publishers contribute to the goals of those companies, that's a good marriage. But the goals change, necessarily, just like goals change for publishers. And we never want to be overly reliant on anybody else. We want to control our own destiny. And the best way to do that is to do great original reporting, build the direct and loyal audience, and focus on our own platforms. And then, of course, we will do whatever makes sense for us within that context on platforms. I'm not opposed to them. We're just not, it's not an a priori good that we should be doing everything we can on them. So are you using uh, instant articles? I don't think you're on AMP. We are not using instant articles. Okay. We are not using AMP. We are not doing Snapchat Discover. Um, those those specific tactics didn't make a lot of sense for us, and for the time being, I still believe, don't make a lot of sense for us. From sort of an audience perspective or revenue, because to your point, you know, the audience is sort of migrating to those platforms, but I think the ad revenue is still sort of a big question there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so is it sort of a both or? Well, I, th- I think it's... It's not entirely both. I mean, unquestionably, you could have a larger audience. Most publishers could if they were on uh, Instant Articles or Google Amp, etc. Um, but the question is, what is the value of that audience? And is that value derived from them seeking you out or them accidentally ending up at a particular publisher's Instant Article page because that is a tactic that is favored by the particular social platform? That's an open question. That, to me, doesn't sound like high-value, loyal growth. So that's the first point. As it relates to revenue, you're exactly right. Pretty much every article I read about what a publisher is doing on AMP or Instant Articles or anything else, I'm not just picking on those two, but the list, is, again, is quite long. Three articles about why it's an interesting strategy, how they're testing and learning, why it's good for users, the pages are faster. Then somewhere around the fourth or fifth paragraph, of the article is, well, we got to figure out the monetization piece still. But that fundamentally is the central question, right? Independent journalism, which we at The Beast are wholly committed to, whether it's a digital print or otherwise, requires financial viability. And let's say the last 10 years has largely been, in digital media, has largely been um, viewed through the framework of this idea that the largest audience, or the larger the audience, the more vital the brand is and the better the business is. That's not really true. And I think we now know, especially given the last 18 months, that that is definitely not true. So we're back to kind of where we were 15 years ago in terms of digital media, which is what is the thing that is of value and how do you derive value from it, which is why our strategy, as I've outlined it, is, is what it is. All right, well, we're going to talk a little bit more about your business model. Uh, we got to take a quick break right after this. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. 
Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Hi, I'm Paul Vigna. If you do not subscribe to the Money Beat Podcast, you are going to feel worse than a short seller on the day of a big rally. Go to iTunes and WSJ.com slash podcasts. You want to sign up for this one. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. All right, we're back with Mike Dyer from the Daily Beast. Mike, we were just talking about uh, sort of the strategies that you take with with platforms. Um, I read that by the end of 2014, more than half of your revenue uh, was from sponsored content. I'm curious now, in terms of, of branded content, what what does your business model look like now? Uh, what what does that make up in terms of, of your ad strategy? Well, let me answer this specific tactical question first and kind of back out into the strategy. So the, the, the answer to your question is that now about 90% plus of the campaigns that run with us have some content marketing, either creation promotion or the combination of in them. Over 70% of our revenue from campaigns is entirely tied to content marketing. We define that very broadly, right? There's one part, of course, that is the making of the article, video, event, fill in the blank, right? It can be a lot of different things. But for us, the other part of it that's really important that increasingly... uh, advertisers are are telling us they value is obviously the role that data can play in all this. And a lot of publishers talk about their data stack, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the great virtues of the Daily Beast, of course, being founded, incubated, and now wholly owned by IAC, as part of the IAC publishing group, we have access to a, a vast data set. And we have a data sciences team that mines that data set. Um, And it's one of the most differentiated data sets out there going back almost 20 years, uh, thanks to the ask.com, MindSpark, about.coms of the world. And what you actually end up with when you look not just at that data, but also bounce it against the Daily Beast data and the way we do this for our own editorial and for advertising is we can identify millions and millions of topics, uh, cross-match those with thousands of different audience attributes and then Tinder. look at audience change Tinder. over time. No, no I, will, I will be very clear and say that, that you know, <laughs> the, uh, the when you uh, marry dating that with... group is, <laughs> That's is a separate unto animal. itself. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And specifically, of, of course, because you know, uh, customer privacy, of data course, privacy is a very different thing. But so which properties does that involve? I'm guessing about.com. And... Yeah, so I see publishing is about.com, uh, ask.com, dictionary.com, Investopedia, and the Daily Beast. Okay. So, so the data piece of it is incredibly useful for us, and we've built a couple proprietary tools. On top of that, they're specifically aimed at advertiser pain points around content marketing, the most important of which is, okay, if I'm going to spend this money with you, what is going to happen? And it's, as we all know, not as simple as how many impressions are you going to deliver, or at least it shouldn't be. The question is how many people that you're particularly after are going to engage with this, what's going to happen, and what are the business KPIs that's going to drive? And We're now getting to a place where we can predict those um, within about five percentage points, and we're accurate about 90% of the time. So what, we're, what they're really buying from us is not just the marketing tactic du jour, but they're also getting from us confidence and peace of mind in terms of that money that they're spending leading to the business outcomes, which in many cases are far more sophisticated than just how many impressions you're going to deliver. Is that for you all one of the main benefits of kind of being in the IAC umbrella? Because it 
it seems from the outsider's perspective that IAC has so many different companies that that do various things, but it's it's unclear the extent to which they all work together. Like, is is there uh, the data piece sounds like it's a big component, but are there other ways that the IAC companies all kind of interact um, or or help out each other from a sales perspective? Maybe. Yeah, I mean got- that would be one sort of obvious. Not from a sales perspective okay. beyond uh, when two individual brands, let's say, in IAC Publishing feel there's a reason or opportunity to marry up on a particular campaign or initiative or client. Um, but you're right. The, the data science piece of it is unquestionably an advantage that the Daily Beast has by virtue of being in IAC that many of our competitors do not have, just in terms of the scale of the data set uh, and the relative ability of our data scientists and the data sciences team to mine that for actionable insights, again, both for our editors and for content marketing. So you mentioned 70% of your revenue is sort of tied to content marketing. Now you say you sell display advertising as well. Is that sort of a declining piece of your business or is display advertising declining sort of generally, do you think? How do you see that panning out over the next few years? Uh, yes and no. So for us, uh, standard display advertising, uh, you know, uh, so you mean programmatic sort of or private IAB. marketplace or IAB standard display advertising is actually a growing part of our business, um, despite the fact that it's a declining part of the business overall. But declining from what? Declining from tens of billions of dollars, right? right? Yeah. Um, so there's still a massive opportunity there. The reason it's growing for us is directly related to mo- the strategy I was outlining in terms of building a direct and loyal audience. We do have a a different and differentiated audience than most of our competitors because we don't pursue traffic growth primarily through the social networks, right? Because everybody else just overlaps and it's the same audience they're speaking to. Well, sure. If If you're trying to get bigger via platforms, those platforms look like the country, right? That's what their demographic profile is because they're so large. It's much easier and cheaper to get scale plenty of other places online than to go to any direct publisher. So the question is, what are advertisers going to direct directly to publishers for? And the answer really either should be a higher performing product, influence by being related to or next to the point of view, audience or a differentiated audience. Yeah. And for us, the bet is the audience you can't get elsewhere. And we do have an audience you can't get elsewhere. We have a young at 27 million people. We have a younger audience than everybody but Vice and BuzzFeed. We have a richer audience than Quartz, than the Atlantic, than most uh, financial sites. We have a more tech influential audience than TechCrunch and The Verge. We have a more culturally influential audience than the New York. You line all that up, and that's a fairly distinct audience. And that's part of the reason that display is still a good business for us. The other reason it's a good business for us is we are increasingly doing custom display, right? Let's call it the magazine-style ad. Just the idea that having a very large canvas with very premium creative on it that's meaningfully integrated into the site experience is good for a brand. And that actually is something we include in our native advertising work. I was about to say you didn't use the word native once there. But, no. yeah. but it, it's, <laughs> it's really just a, another kind of it, uh, right? It, it's just an ad. It's not a piece of content, but it's still native. Um, and it, it has more traditional ad-like qualities. It's just not something you're going to see on every other site. Um, we don't want our ads or our content to be because we don't have an audience like every other site. And are you guys profitable? 
IAC does not break out its individual businesses, but I will tell you in terms of publicly available information, we're seeing revenue growth on the order of 90% for the first half of the year and third quarter shortly. Do you think that um, it sounds like you know content marketing, sponsor content, it's a big part of your business um, and a grow and a major major chunk of it? The a lot of media executives these days are bragging about sort of how differentiated their businesses are. What we have this huge events business, we have this huge e-commerce arm. The extent to whether that's actually the case may be up for debate. But um, do you feel like maybe you're putting most of your eggs in one basket, or, or, or not so much? We don't look at content marketing as the silver bullet any more than we look at video advertising as a silver bullet any more than we look at events as a silver bullet or the social networks as a silver bullet. We don't really believe in silver bullets. <laughs> um, and I think the first 25, 30 years of digital media would suggest that anytime someone says there is one, there probably isn't. Um, or that you should run fast in the other direction from whatever that is because pretty soon everybody will be doing it, right? So content marketing is a tactic that is both effective for advertisers, um, is valuable from a revenue standpoint for publishers. But again, we're not married to the idea of content marketing. So long as it is something that we can do in a premium way and something that advertisers are willing to pay premium CPMs for, we will continue to do it. And to me, one of the great um, constants of the digital media landscape really over the last 10 or 15 years is not that it's content marketing or display or events or off-platform. It's that there is a reliable range of, we'll call them premium CPMs. We'll call them $50 and up CPMs. And what tends to happen is, quote, new advertising products enter the market somewhere north of that, usually around $100 CPMs. But they can kind of stick between $50 and $100 CPM for quite a while. And then there's more inventory, then more publishers are doing it, and then the prices start to drift down into the commodity range. We'll call that 30, 40, and below, right? Um, Content marketing is still in that range, that premium CPM range, 50 and up for most publishers. And it's been there for quite a while. But we know that eventually it will drift below that because there's just so much more inventory and so much more... um, capability on the part of all digital publishers. So for us, what we're married to is the products that exist in that tier. And those change every so often. And I think it would behoove any digital publisher to really think about what's going to be in that tier next. Podcasts. Po- could be podcasts. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, just to come back to something you mentioned earlier, I mean, you said that sort of, you know, 50% or thereabouts of your audience is coming direct. Um, and you're not sort of wed to the social platform. So I wonder how that relates to sort of your mobile audience because, again, sort of the the wisdom has been that the growth is on social platforms, but it's also been mobile. Um, So do you find yourselves, I don't know, I I guess sort of under-indexing versus some of the other publishers out there on the mobile side, or how does that sort of break down? We do not see that. Uh, In fact, last month we were 62% mobile, which was our highest month ever. Okay. Um, so but, the idea that mobile traffic is sort of exclusively social is not necessarily true. But. I think it's true enough. Um, I, I think well, two thoughts. The, the first of which is when we benefit from disproportionately social stories, we do see that on mobile. So unquestionably, mobile is social and social is mobile and there's all that. But for us, we have two other products that do incredibly well on mobile. One, our email products are 
disproportionately mobile by far. Mm -hmm. And we've optimized them for that. So that's where we see a lot of audience growth. In fact, our subscriber lists for both our Daily Digest, which is our top stories email that goes out twice a day, and our cheat sheet email, which I'll get to in a second, that goes out twice a day. Both of the subscriber lists have doubled since we put in place mobile optimizations. Um, and we were, we were already at hundreds of thousands of people to begin with, just to give you a sense of scale. So that drives a lot of mobile traffic for us. And then the second thing is that we have the product, the cheat sheet, which was really one of the first, and I would argue remains one of the best, quote, brief products. And the concept for the cheat sheet is 10 stories, the 10 most important stories, not defined by trending, not defined by an algorithm or any or sharing or anything else, but defined by our editors as the 10 most important uh, stories of the moment, each of which gets a 100 to 200 word overview with a point of view. That is delivered via email, but that is also something that we privilege on the mobile site. And when you think about it, that is a phenomenal product experience for a quick dip in to see what's happening in the world. Even better that it's coming from an expert that helps you quickly generate a point of view, whether you're trying to impress somebody in a job interview or win the cocktail party or some other scenario in between. Um, that's what's really those two things, our email products and our cheats are really driving our success on mobile. wanted to um, ask you about Facebook Live. Uh, a lot of publishers are diving headfirst into that. I think you guys, you did have a Facebook Live show. Has there been, there's a sense now among publishers that maybe there's a little bit of a pullback or not quite seeing the same engagement. I'm curious what, what that's been like for, for you all over the past couple of months. Facebook Live is one of the social network products that we really like. Um, and part of the reason we like it is because it, it meets a few criteria for us for anything we're going to do on a social network, given what I've described as our, our strategy. The first of which is, does it retain our voice, right? Most often when publishers go on social networks, by the time they package up their content to perform, it sounds more like the voice of the social network than it does their own brand. That's not a good bet long term for building a brand. The thing we love about Facebook Live is that we can retain our brand. Um, that's the first part. The second part is we didn't want to overinvest in it. We've tried a bunch of things, and one of the things we love about Facebook Live is it's incredibly cheap to test and learn. It's sort of two editors talking about the news stories of at the most, day. Or, at most. Yeah. It could be that. Um, we do a show called Drink Cart where we take our drink and food editor and send him out to a bar with one of the top bartenders in the world that he knows. Um, and they make a drink during happy hour, and they talk about its history, and off they go. That's one of our best-performing shows. But the other side of this is what we call beast mode. Beast mode is very simply we make a decision as a company because we've invested so heavily in expert reporters across our beats that when there is a breaking news story that we have something meaningful to contribute to, at certain times we will say to a, a reporter or editor, no, don't spend the first two hours of this story calling your sources and doing a report out. We're going to make you available on Facebook Live and make your expertise available on Facebook Live to answer any questions anybody has. So a, a classic example of this for us, and really the one where it really worked the way we wanted it to for the first time, was during the Brussels bombing. Mm -hmm. uh, we made one of our world news reporters available on Facebook Live, um, and he got a couple hundred questions, I think, in a few minutes with everything from, was it ISIS? Is it safe for me to fly tomorrow? You know, should I reconsider my travel plans? What's going on? Is this related to anything we were doing? Uh, 
were there any Americans there? It's a wide range That's hard to of do questions. in real time, I would imagine. It's very hard to do in real time. But it's also very valuable given the public good mission of journalism. And that's the last criteria for us is where can we put our people, our reporters and our editors and our resources most broadly to do the most good given that mission. And that's why Facebook Live works in those certain conditions. So we're, we're huge fans of that. Um, but the other thing is we never overinvested in it, right? We didn't right, hire up a team of the, 10 or 12. The monetization or, piece still isn't there. And, and so, you know, if it, but if that, were, if that were there, you could see yourself sort of investing more, more resources. If the monetization piece was there and there was something unique we could do in a reliable and ongoing fashion, sure, potentially. Um, but we're very happy with where we are right now because it's more organic and it retains our voice and our brand. Uh, all right. We'd be last question. I'd be remiss if I, I didn't ask about uh, Newsweek. Um, so just a brief history lesson for, for our readers. Newsweek was, was sold by the Washington Post company uh, famously in 2010 for $1. Uh, it, it merged with uh, Daily Beast. Um, IAC was the controlling controlling owner, and in 2013, right, I believe when you right around when you joined the company, um, it was sold to to the uh, Business Times, International Business Times. You you were there briefly. That's correct. Um, I'm curious. So I, I, you know, it's it seems like it, that speaks to a, a the struggles that Newsweek had speaks to a larger question right now in in media, which is like these big sort of well known media brands in the age of, of social media, does the sort of name name matter uh, anymore? And, and when so much news is consumed in your feed with so many different publishers, I'm curious, like, what lessons you learned from from Newsweek and and what you think, it spe- it, whether it speaks to any of those larger challenges? Well, I think that the question of brand is the key question, right? If scale as the coin of the realm over the last 10 years online didn't work, and really hasn't worked, um, then what will be? And as I've said over the last 20 or 30 minutes, for us, that is unquestionably the bet. That is the only durable advantage that a media company can have day in and day out is a brand that means something to users. Um, We did a study earlier in the year that showed that with the exception of, I believe, BuzzFeed, we had the, the beast, had the highest awareness among all digital publishers in, in at least domestically, at, at mid-30s, I think like 36 37% for most of our competitors were in the teens. And I think that's a big question going forward, whether it's Newsweek or Vox or BuzzFeed or Mashable or The Daily Beast, how do you build a brand that is sustainable, that is differentiated? And at the end of the day, the thing that really matters is that is meaningful to people. And meaningful. So, so is BuzzFeed an exception in that case then? Because obviously, you know, they have huge scale and, you know, they do have a brand. So, mm-hmm. Are they an exception? I don't know. I guess we'll see. I think we're entering into this phase or this era of media where it's not about the scale play anymore. I think unquestionably BuzzFeed is the, let's say, poster child for the last decade of digital media. And again, the, the largely off-platform prism through which all media online has been viewed, but now we're in a new place. And it's often easier to know what area you're leaving than what area you're entering into. But we believe, and I believe strongly, that it has more to do with brand and influence 
and loyalty than it uh, than any previous era of digital media has, and we'll see how it goes. All right, cool. We'll we'll be monitoring it. We'll be following along. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for coming in. We really appreciate it. We'll be we'll be uh, reading closely. Uh, all right, thanks everyone for listening. We'll catch you next time on the WSJ Media Mix podcast. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.